Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. to be here. I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time in 26 years that Gary has trusted me enough to actually leave town while I'm here. And so now I can tell you what I've wanted to tell you all these years. Oh, okay. Back off. Oh, as, as Derek just uh, touched on briefly, and especially for the benefit of some who I don't know or haven't had the chance to meet, I, in fact, I was surprised when someone pointed out it's already been three years since I was with you the last time. Um, as much as I would love to get to your church and around more frequently, the, the reality is my team and I serve 220 or so congregations uh, in seven states. And uh, you add that to the fact that our our the strategy of our ministry has really shifted through the years where most of our work is invested in kind of midweek stuff with the leadership of our churches, getting churches started, and uh, less and less in the actual Sunday worship services. In fact, uh, it's become probably more routine for my team to actually be rooted in a home and local church uh, serving in that way. And I think that's made all of us uh, a lot healthier. But it's, uh, it's still wonderful, wonderful to be with you. Uh, when I have such brief opportunities with churches, and with such long periods of time in between, it's, it's obviously very hard to pick um, what you want to say in the few minutes that we share together. And through the years, having done this 26 years, in fact, doing a little quick math, there, Gary and I, and April, and Dee Dee and I came to our, our churches at the same time, 1978-ish, something like 1978, um, and Gary is still in his first church. <laughs> I've now been in this role uh, for 26 years, uh, being a regional overseer of churches, so... Um, it, it's just a fun, fun opportunity that my team and I have uh, to be involved. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go. But, but there are two themes that I keep coming back to, and I always end up landing on one of these two themes when, when I'm with folks. Uh, one thing has to do with the centrality of Scripture. I just, whenever I have a minute to preach or teach, I, I spend time talking about the importance of God's children uh, feeding from God's Word, being in constant communication with Him on a regular basis, and the last time I was here, we really pushed that, and I just shared how important regular Bible reading, uh, strategic Bible reading had become in, in my life and my family's life. Uh, the other theme, and the one that I want to camp on for a few minutes this morning, uh, is, is another one equally center, central to my heart, and uh, one that I think is equally strategic and important for God's people, and that, that has to do with the uh, centrality of the local church, and not just the local church, Paseo del Rey. I do not want to be speaking metaphorically because I have every conviction that this local gathering of God's people is the most strategic thing you can be investing your life in and that you're in the right place. And I hope I can send you home encouraged. So we're, we're going to put some rubber on the road in trying to do that. I want to, I want to give you a number between 1 and 10. And I'm going to do that by asking you to listen to my very crude uh, hope index measurement tool, okay? Uh, I want to explore this notion of hope a little bit. And this is not going to have anything to do with the person next to you, so please don't look at them and raise your eyebrow. Um, but, um, you could actually Google uh, metric devices to measure hope because hope has become quite the buzzword even in the non 
spiritual non-Christian psychological community. There's a lot of work being done on the role of hope in the human psyche, how important it is to being healthy physically, healthy emotionally. So a lot of people are interested in it, and you can find some pretty sophisticated stuff out there. Mine's crude. I wrote my own 10 number index, and I'm gonna read you the numbers, basically one through 10, and I want you to privately say, that's my number. So you're, you're hopefully, I'm gonna do it in a way that you can say, I'm probably a four or a six or whatever. One would be on the far left end of, of hopeless, and it would read something like this. I am plagued by a paralyzing fear of what the future holds to the point that it has robbed me of all joy. A person feeling that way would say, uh, I'm a one, okay? I'm gonna jump up to three. A three might say this, although I want to believe that God has a loving and secure future for me, I probably tip toward a prevailing doubt that things will turn out well, and this often spills over into my attitude and my conversations. So you might be a, a believer in God and his promises, but in reality, you have kind of a nagging pessimism about how things are gonna turn out. You'd be a three. Five, honestly, I'm kind of numb. I'm not paralyzed by uncertainty, nor am I really getting any bounces of happiness or joy by what I believe to be true. I'm just kind of, I'm in there. Seven, I'm gonna to jump to seven. By and large, a seven might say this, I'm optimistic enough about the future that I'm handling any difficulties in my life satisfactorily, and I'm confident that I can handle more if necessary. Got it? Let's jump all the way to 10, and let's just be honest here. I, I wish you were all 10s, maybe some of us have been 10s, but uh, if you're not a 10, just admit that, okay? Here's what a 10 might say. I have such a deeply rooted certainty that my future is in the hands of an all-powerful yet loving God that it visibly spills over into an optimistic and joyful attitude that others cannot help but notice. Okay, you got the idea? I don't need to reread those because it's not scientific, but I want you for your purposes privately to just arbitrarily grab a number that you think is probably most representative of your hope level today. And then we're going to do two things with that. The first thing I want to ask you is, do you believe you are in control of that number or do you believe your hope status controls you? I don't know if you've ever really thought about it that way. That the way you approach a day based on your level of actual, practical, tangible hope in a God that actually results in you being a more optimistic person that other people look at and just go, man, there's something very different about that person. Do you think you're in control of that or do you think it's something a little bit out of your control? Now, I'm obviously going to imply that I think it's more under your control than you think it is. And here's my goal for today. I'm, I'm hoping to ratchet everybody in the room up at least uh, a notch, okay? If you're a 10, just bear with me, okay? <laughs> uh, we've got some other work for you to do. Uh, but uh, I'm hoping that if you're a three, we're going to push you up to a four or five. I'm hoping that if you're at a six, we're going to get you to a seven or eight. And you're going to leave here feeling like there is something to this teaching from God's word that the local church has a very practical and real purpose to play in my life. So let's kind of jump into this study. I've given you an outline that'll just kind of give you the, the, the rough roadmap of where we're going to go. The first way I want to explore this uh, has to do with our need. I would just actually go as far as to say our unquenchable thirst for proof of things. Most of us just prefer that something be affirmed over and over again. 
Um, for many people, there is what I would call an inverse relationship between their relationship with God and their level of hope. In other words, to the degree that you feel affirmed and proven that he is real and his promises are real, unless you've had a fairly recent demonstration of that, your hope level index might be on a lower scale. And so it's not true for all of us, but I'm just going to toss out the, the concept that, that we often fall into that trap because we are people who like to see Proof. Let me just mention an example. Uh, by the way, I will mostly be in the book of Acts uh, today, but there are several verses in both John and, and Romans I want to touch on. So there's a Bible in the pew if you're new or if you didn't bring a Bible. And uh, for example, John 20 is going to show up on page 1088, 1088, if you use that Bible pew. And I just wanted to point out a story here that illustrates my point. It's really sad when you think about it, but a lot of the people in the Bible, because God put their stories here for everybody to study for, for thousands of years, uh, we have really, I think, done a disservice to a lot of those people. I've, I've really felt bad as I've grown older about the way I have spoken through the years about some of these people. And let me just give you an example. Um, in Acts chapter, uh, John 20, excuse me, we, we run across one of the disciples named Thomas. What is the first thing you think of when I tell you about Disciple Thomas? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. That's the way he has been dubbed through the centuries. And the reason is because of what happens in verse 24. This is after Jesus has been crucified, buried, he's risen from the dead, and he has started appearing to people. And in fact, he's already appeared to some of the disciples. Thomas, it says, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails... And unless I place my hand into his side, obviously referring to where the sword cut him, then I will never believe. Unfortunate words, because it cast Thomas until this all gets straightened out in heaven as a doubter. And of course, Jesus went on to respond to that by saying, Blessed are those who believe without seeing the proof. And in fact, in those powerful words, Jesus basically described what you and I are left with. Everybody after this first century season was left with the choice of being asked to place their faith in Jesus as the risen Son of God, the Messiah promised of long ago, not having been able to see his physical body. So that's the, the place we're in. But what has not changed is our need for proof. And I think if truth were told... I'm glad I wasn't there that day because I would have been him. I probably would have said something like that before I thought about what the implications were. So I just want to hold Thomas up. And by the way, um, I, I met another gentleman afterwards that has been with the same group. Uh, Gary and I have gone to India together. Um, one of the trips that we were on there, we got to visit one of the churches, which is rumored to have been one of the churches planted by the disciple Thomas. Of course, this, it's, it's interesting that he went on to die for his faith. He planted churches all throughout the, the area now known as, as uh, Asia and India, and he's still dubbed as the Doubting Thomas, which is a really unfortunate thing. So do your part to help save his reputation. Um, but here's, here's the issue. I think he represents pretty well 
the hunger that we all have for just affirmation, even if we're mature in the Lord. I mean, I, I study some of these Old Testament stories, and from what I can tell, some of these old patriarchs, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and those, it seems to me some of those guys would actually be visited by God, they'd be told to do something by God, they would hopefully act obediently, and then there may be a hundred years that they don't hear from God. And I've often read those stories, and I've thought, how, you know, how does that speak to what God expects from us relative to the signs that he gives us of, of his presence? And we all know the stories of the Israelites and their constant need for proof in the traveling through the wilderness after the Exodus. They constantly needed proof. And rather than denigrate them or, or criticize them, let's just acknowledge we all love proof. We all love proof. What I'm here today to suggest is that we have under our noses and not really appreciated by most people, an overlooked gift of proof of God's presence on a regular basis. In fact, I, I am going on record these years to say this. In my experience of ministry and from my perspective in ministry, I would say this is the most significantly overlooked, underutilized evidence of God's presence in our lives on a regular basis of anything in the body of Christ. Now, when I talk about signs that convince people, you obviously, if you've been around the church very long, uh, know that the, the thought runs right immediately to some of the controversial things. I mean, I was a young Christian representing Jesus in high school, trying to be a witness to my friends. And I think I was 14 years old when I first ran into a, an argument with a fellow Christian over the issue of speaking in tongues and casting out demons. And it was one of my first experiences at how quickly the church of Jesus can become divided over things that people believe about Jesus. And through the years, I would see, there's a reason we call them sign gifts. And it's still a controversy, not nearly to the degree that it, that it has been at times, but it, it really is rooted in so many ways in this need that we have for proof of the supernatural. So that's why this subject of the most overlooked gift in our presence is, is pretty significant. Um, the proof of that is right here in Paseo del Rey. And I'm not speaking metaphorically. If you're visiting, then substitute the name of your church or another church that you are connected with. But I want to suggest to you that every place you find a local church that has come into existence because it is proclaiming Jesus as Lord and teaching about him through his word and hoping to lead people into transformed lives through his saving power. Anytime you find a group of people gathered in the name of Jesus for that purpose, you are witnessing a miracle. You really are. And, and the more you, if you worked with churches the way I do, the more evidence you would have to believe there, there's no reason these things should have survived. They do everything, we do everything possible to destroy these things. I mean, my church, my, my team of, of people that I work with, you know, we don't, I, we don't spend more than probably 20% of our time fighting fires, but we do spend 20% of our time fighting fires. 220 congregations that we serve in seven states, my, my team is, is uh, chosen um, based on their experience in ministry, their maturity in the Lord, and their giftedness and passion. We all have different areas of interest, and my team, even as we speak today, is spread out all over seven states. And we, uh, we actually do a kind of a medical team thing. We, we have conference calls once a week. 
Uh, we come together about every three weeks physically. We live in different states. Uh, we email, copy, blind copy each other probably 35 to 50 times a day. And our approach as a team to our churches is try to share our wisdom. Um, what do we do with this situation? What do we do when we get the phone call that says such and such has happened or this is going on? And this is a constant thing for us. And so if, from a human perspective, we have every reason to look at the local church and go, there's no reason these things should survive. I mean, it's incredible how clever people get at trying to destroy a church. You can't think of anything that can go wrong in a church that we haven't seen. It might have a new name on it, it might have a new face on it. We're talking sexual failure in the leadership, the elder board, the congregation. We're talking financial embezzlement. We're, we're talking uh, deception and graft. We're talking, you name it, we have seen it. I got a call a couple weeks ago from a young woman away at college. Her college counselor, she, she went late to college, so she's in her mid-20s. The, the counselor at her college heard her story and said, you were raped by the pastor's Son, I don't care how you describe that. And you have an obligation to go back and revisit this 10-year-old story and file suit. And so I got the call. You know, this is typical of the kind of stuff we learn about what goes on in the human race, even when they gather in churches. So of all people, we have a reason to say, there is no reason the church should have survived this long. <laughs> There's no reason. And when you look at a church like this one that's in its 40-something year and still healthy as you can get, you go, this is a miracle of God. And I want to show you more of the reason to rejoice about that. And when you get doubtful, you don't have to go any further than this body of people to be reminded of the daily, hourly, moment-by-moment -moment presence of the Holy Spirit of God desiring to change people's lives. Let's, let's look a little bit at that. The, the category I've kind of put this under is is about the uh, sign gift that keeps on giving. And what I mean by that is that I have come to believe that local churches like this one are the, the most central strategic place God has chosen to be the place where we uh, protect the truth, we preserve the truth, we teach the truth, and we spread the truth. Local churches through history have been the choice God has put together as a strategy. And you could say the family is important, and I agree with that. But from a strategic standpoint, organizationally, the local church is what God chose to do. And that's how he chooses to do this. It's the place where truth resides. It's the place where we hold up and protect and guard the, the, the belief that the scriptures of God are spoken, they're living, they're inerrant, they're infallible. They're the word of God instructing us on a daily basis. It's the place we study them. It's the place we teach them, the place that we spread that. So what I want to do is just kind of amplify the significance of that from several different angles. And... Uh, I probably, I know this could result in a four-minute rabbit trail, but I've got to tell you what happened to me last night because it just underscored once again the importance of the truth that we hold and this thing that we do call church. Um, can't tell a lot because this is supposedly kind of a secret thing. It's, it's a secret ministry. Uh, there's a group of men that have had the, the blessing of God for, for almost 10 years now to be allowed to go on base somewhere here in San Diego every Saturday night and preach the gospel to that week's inducted crew of Marine recruits. You may not know that. There's only two Marine bases in the United States. 20 to 30,000 a year come here, 20 to 30,000 a year go to 
Paris Island and South Carolina. They go to one or the other. So every year between 20 and 30,000 Marine recruits come through basic training here in San Diego County. This group of men have been given the blessing of God on the end of their eighth week of basic training out of 12 to have them for two private hours in a, in a building where they hear an hour and a half of worship music. And these guys haven't heard music or anything for eight weeks. And then they hear a 30-minute, they actually hear a testimony from a World War II veteran. And then they get 30 minutes of Bible teaching about the gospel. And it was my privilege last night to be the speaker. And they were told, you're not going to be, you're not, you're not going to be ready for what God's going to do tonight. And don't get heady because it has nothing to do with you, buddy. <laughs> they said, we've learned that God has things in mind for these guys. And I, I, I wish I could tell you more. Uh, they can't show pictures. They can't show videos. But what I experienced last night has changed my life for at least the next year or two. Um, I started sharing the story of Jesus, my story, how, how Jesus has touched my life. I said, nobody has any way of knowing where you guys are. I'm, I'm assuming it's discouraged. You're in pain. You're frustrated. You're discouraged. You're probably scared to death. And I just believe God wants to touch you guys tonight. <clears throat> Told them about the gospel. At the very end of my message, I just felt led to say, I want, I want you guys to take the courageous stand. 400 guys in this room. I want you to take the stand of coming forward during this last song. And by coming forward, you're either going to be saying, I want to know this Jesus and receive him now, or I have known Jesus, but I've put him in the back of my life, and I want to put him at the front again. Take a guess how many guys came forward out of 400. 300. Crowded to the front of that chapel. Crying. Some of them dropped on their knees and sobbing. And I was able to pray over those guys. We, and here's the tragedy. We have no permission to follow up with those guys. But we were the touch that they needed last night. And it just underscored to me the power of the truth and the importance of the local church. Because the one thing we said is, guys, at some point in your life, you need to stay in the scripture. We gave them a Bible and you need to get in a church where you can get surrounded by godly people. So anyway, that's my, my thing about just a fresh appreciation of, of uh, the importance of this thing that we do. So let's look at a few angles of this. Um, we're going to Acts 19 right now. In the Bible in your pew, it's going to be on page uh, 1113, uh, 1113. Um, my, my team and I have been camped in Acts 19 actually for a couple years. And I've got about nine angles that I love to approach this story from. Um, there are several stories in the Bible of how churches get started. But we have been just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying our study of the book of Acts, of Ephesians, excuse me, the, the, the launching of the church in Ephesus. Um, because it's got so many components that, that instruct us in how to plant a church uh, and how to minister to a church throughout the course of its, of its life. And so we've been just coming back time and time again and just really feeling like God is instructing us through this, the story of this church called Ephesus. I want to look first at Acts 18. Look with me in verse 24. We're just going to kind of kick the story off with this guy named Apollos. It says, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that would be Egypt, came to Ephesus he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, 
though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When he wished to cross to Achaia, which would be Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him there. And then when he arrived, he greatly helped those. And he's got a new power now. It says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, let me give you a little backdrop here. We're kind of dropping in on the planting of the church in Ephesus mid-story. What has already happened is, is the the ending of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's already come down through um, Athens and Greece. Uh, it says when he got to Corinth, he met this couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They had been kicked out of Rome, so apparently they had already become believers in Jesus in Rome way before most people think of the church starting there. They've now been kicked out by Claudius because Jews were kicked out of the, the city and they came to Corinth. That's where Paul met them, most likely because they were fellow tent makers and they discovered that they were believers and they became close friends. So now then Paul brings them with him to his first visit to Ephesus. By the time we read this story, um, Paul has already headed back to Jerusalem and he left Priscilla and Aquila there. So bear in mind, obviously, these people don't have the benefit of smartphones and tracking devices. And it's just fun to kind of think, you know, how did God get these people together? The, the towns were not as big as today. Ephesus, I'm told, was probably a quarter of a million people. That's still big. Uh, and when you think about the, the confusion and all of that, how did these people find each other? Probably in a Jewish synagogue context somewhere. But nevertheless, what we find here is a little piece I want to give you. And I, I'm kind of wrestling with the best way to dub this, but, but there's something missing in Apollos' message, okay? This guy is coming from the most educated city in the world, uh, Alexandria. He's the, the prototype of an articulate, brilliant theologian. He's a, he's a good communicator. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the phrase that it uses, that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, and yet there was something not right. And this humble, lay, blue-collar couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila are used by God to correct his teaching. And you can label that any way you want. I've, I've called it the danger of inaccurate information. But I want to suggest that one of the great dangers you and I face in life is believing the wrong stuff. And it's easy to believe the wrong stuff. Um, today, with all the proliferation of Bible teaching on the internet and through video and through uh, everything else, we're, we're constantly being subjected to different kinds of teaching. And I would suggest to you that, that one of the important, least appreciated miracles that God accomplishes in a local church is that he brings multiple people together to make sure that information remains complete and accurate. It's here in a place like this that you're most likely to be corrected lovingly if you fall victim to something very persuasively, enticingly unbiblical. It happens all the time. Some of you have had kids go off to college and fall victim to some information that was either incomplete, misleading, or downright godless. It's a church that is the place where God does the most effective work of correcting those inaccuracies. Let's move on to another shade of this in uh, the first seven verses of Acts 19. Um, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, in other words, he's now left, 
Paul now comes back. He's come back through the inland of Asia Minor. He comes now down to Ephesus. He found some disciples. So he's come into town now, and he runs across some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently, he sat kind of by in the crowd and listened to this group of guys. It says there were 12 of them. He heard them preaching publicly, and they were, they were saying some of the right stuff, but there was just something missing. And in fact, his question tells you what he thinks is missing. <laughs> um, I won't elaborate, but I've had the experience of sitting under some very accurate biblical teaching, and my sense is the Holy Spirit is not here. And I don't know if it's that this guy isn't a believer or if he doesn't have the gift of teaching. I don't know. It can be both. But there was something wrong, and Paul heard their message, and he, he, he goes up to these guys, and he goes, hey, guys, um, any chance you received the Holy Spirit when you believe? Look at their answer. No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? And he said, well, what were you baptized into then? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, this is a fascinating thing to me. They refer to the same thing that Apollos did. They refer to the same school of thinking John the Baptist, as Apollos did, and yet they had two completely different approaches to ministry. And they were, they were doing some kind of proselytizing without having at its core the message of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you receive when you become a believer in Jesus. So anyway, to make the story shorter, it says he told them about Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into his name. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and now they're good to go. So here's another example of why it's critical that God's people be together with God's people. It's when we get together collectively and submit ourselves to the instruction of the Holy Spirit that we can get everybody onto the same page. Otherwise, we have these factious, divided groups going around teaching half-truths and complete truths and non-truths. Let's look at another one. Uh, there's so many ways to look at this. In fact, that one that, that we just looked at reminds me of... <laughs> uh, the importance of the Holy Spirit and just bringing a church together. You know, when you think back on the, the, the planting of this church in Ephesus, um, what we, we were just fascinated by, how did God bring together Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, Apollos, the 12 disciples from John, and he ends up assembling this group of people. In my experience of our leading churches, and one of the things that we do most frequently, uh, I think this is the thing we're best known for as a district ministry, is planting new churches. We're kind of a catalyst for that. And, and I'm thrilled to tell you that the, the average over the last five years has still run about 10 brand new churches a year um, that we're helping facilitate. Uh, Dave Page on my staff, and we all pitch in in some ways or, or the other. Um, we have about 40 churches that I would say are in church plant status. In other words, when we plant a church, I think we have two slated to actually launch on Mother's Day. We had four launched on Easter Sunday. Uh, we, we've got two in the oven in Phoenix that'll, that'll burst in sometime in June. Um, each time one of these churches plant or come into a launched visible presence, it's only after a year or more of preparation. And then there are typically another two to three years that we try to be very actively involved in financing the pastor, uh, teaching, coaching, and encouraging to some degree or another, or at least matching them up with established churches. So when we, when we study how to pull a church together, I love reading stories like this that reminds me this is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, this is how you do it. <laughs> you, you seek the Holy Spirit who knows where the Apollos is, the Priscilla's, the Aquila's, the, uh, the blue-collar workers hiding in an aerospace museum somewhere. You know, it's just that he knows where all these people are, and he does the work of pulling them together. Uh, let's look at this power of transforming a life from a rather unique angle. Verse 11 of Acts 19, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now that's fascinating, especially to a subgroup of people known as itinerant Jewish exorcists. You probably didn't even know that there used to be a religious union called, I'm a traveling Jewish exorcist. And that, that's how they're described here. And it, in fact, it says there's one in particular group of them that all happened to be seven brothers, Jewish brothers, son of a priest named Sceva, and this is their vocation. They actually travel around, most likely among the Jewish community, casting out demons. And so you can imagine, especially if they've had a bad week, that they hear the story that all you have to do is have one of the handkerchiefs that the Apostle Paul has touched and, and the demons just run. And so they think we're gonna try that and it says they started trying to cast out demons by using or invoking the Jesus that Paul proclaims, it says. Now, these seven guys in particular went into one house and here's what the demons said back to them. You may not have ever read this before. Hold on to your hats. The demon answers them and says, Jesus I know, I, if I could do this with a really gravelly voice or something, I probably would, but Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, word got around pretty quickly that there is a difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. You see, these guys experienced the hard way that there's no magical power in just saying words. And to me, what it really represents is the difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Uh, it, it is a relationship with him or it's not. It cannot be just an intellectual exchange. The thing that happens when a person becomes a follower of Christ and is uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and is transformed from the kingdom of darkness, moved into the kingdom of light, uh, transformed from death into life. When that happens, we're talking miraculous, inexplicable, supernatural transformation of a person from the inside out. In differing degrees, that has happened to every person in this room who has placed their trust in Christ. It's the core of the, of the thing that makes us attractive to the world outside. It's the core of what makes us able to cope with life in different ways. It's the core of what this is all about, transformed lives. There's no place like a church to encourage that to be happening more often and to cultivate it as it continues to work its way out. There's a side to this though that I wanna to bring to your attention that is the reason I'm here. You're part of a network of churches beyond yourself. Look in verse eight. It says that Paul entered the synagogue for three months. He spoke boldly. He reasoned. He persuaded about the kingdom of God. This was his pattern. He did this everywhere he went. It says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him and then he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This pattern happened almost everywhere Paul went. 
He would go to the Jews first. They would, some accept him, some reject him. And then he would move the Christians who had believed in the message somewhere nearby. In Corinth, I think it was right next door. Uh, here it was somewhere down the road, but it wasn't that big a city. So they just kept going. But listen to what it says here in verse 10. This continued for two years. Again, typical. Paul would typically stay in a place like this a year and a half, two years, helping the church get started. It says this went on for two years. But here's the phrase I want you to notice today. So that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You might not have appreciated that if you had just read this in passing. Do you realize how many people in the world spend their lives praying, thinking, planning as to the most effective way to take the gospel to the whole world? I mean, that's what we think about. I mean, that's what my team does. We, we try to help church planners prepare to be strategic and, and effective. How do you multiply yourself? How do you take a church like Paseo del Rey uh, in, in your, uh, what, fourth decade of life and, and revitalize you? How do we get you reinvigorated to share your faith and to stop thinking of yourself as just a holy huddle and think of yourself as a depository of truth that needs to be disseminated throughout this community. And when you really start getting the, the notion of the significance of being the holders of truth, you start taking on a burden for the whole world. And if you're not careful, you can get really depressed. <laughs> I've been chasing that holy grail my whole life. The reason I said yes to Bill Bright when I was 19 years old was that he believed, he convinced me that we could change six billion people on planet Earth by our faithfulness in evangelism. And then you go, you beat your head against the wall in inner cities for about six years and you don't see much change and you start getting discouraged. So you can understand why I look at a phrase like verse 10 where it says in two years he just pe preached the word in, in this little town called Ephesus and, and lo and behold, in, at the end of two years, everybody in the continent of Asia Minor had heard the gospel. And I go, what's with that? Why didn't they give more instructions on to how they did that? And you know why? I think the answer is obvious. Because we would make that into a manual. We'd publish it. And it would remove the requirement, most basically, to trust the Holy Spirit, to honor your faithfulness doing what you do. And, and that's where I've come, folks. I've, co I've come to the belief that by Paseo del Rey, as a, as a local church, being faithful to what God has called you to be, he will take on the responsibility of multiplying your faith in the concentric circles that he wants to multiply. And you don't have to lose a whole lot of sleep about that. And in the latter years of, of these years of my ministry, I've become very, very much at peace. I'm, I'm urgent. There's a sense of urgency, but I'm at complete peace that working with a group like you, you are in the center of the front line of the most important battle line in the battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light that there is. There's not a, there should not be a sense in you that it's somewhere else out there, that we're missing this. This is it, folks. This is where the battle is at its most intense. And this is where God is accomplishing his purposes. I, I, I hope you can tell that I get, I get pretty pumped up about this. I mean, what you are doing in this church and by being in this church uh, is the center of it. Now, let me end with a word of caution, and I'm out of time. It's amazing how these sermons expand with the second service. <clears throat> you knew that or you wouldn't have come to the second service anyway. Yeah. Um, I put a whole section in here about the predictability of resistance, and, and I don't think I even need to elaborate on that. This story uh, reads out, I'm not going to read it here, in verses 23, the, the same thing happens in Ephesus that happened everywhere they went. 
you know, some degree of organized resistance came about as a result of their, of their ministry there. I learned last night, I said, I'm, I'm just amazed that you guys are still being allowed, even though secretly, to come on base and preach the gospel like this. I mean, this entire class of recruits were required to be in that room. They didn't have an option. And they heard Jesus' songs and they heard the gospel. I thought, how is... How is that still happening? And the guy said, well, it doesn't happen by accident. He said, we've had a couple suits filed against us. There's several high-ranking Marines that have taken them all the way to the top commandant to the JAG, trying to get them kicked off base. So the resistance is always there. It's always there. And folks, we're seeing it in our culture in, in dramatic ways. Last week, a preacher in, in Atlanta, an African-American brother who is a bivocational preacher on Sunday, and then he works for a state agency on Monday, preached one of his typical biblical sermons on Sunday. I went to work on Monday morning. Maybe you read this. CNN made it pretty clear. He was fired because of what he had preached on Sunday by a state agency in the state of Georgia. We're getting closer and closer and closer to places where we as churches are being told by the government to choose carefully what we say. Now, right now, the, the whole what if, uh, let me, the, an example of the what if, um, Canada for years has been not doing weddings. Our churches in Canada, Evangelical Free Church, Canadian churches, for the most part, don't do weddings anymore. We do ceremonies. But if you want a legal wedding, you're going to have to go get married by a justice of the peace or something because the government would require what they're asking us to start requiring is to endorse same-sex marriages. And so it's only a matter of time till in this country we're going to have to say yes or no to the government. And here's what's going to happen. Just, I'm just sorry about the bad news. I'm just telling you resistance is coming. What most likely will happen first is if you as a church refuse to sanction a same-sex marriage in the eyes of the state, you will be den- denied any government privileges that you have. And the most tangible one is, guess what? Property tax exemption. So you're going to have to come up with a whole bunch of money uh, every year if you want to keep that. I hate to be a pessimist, but I just, you know, this isn't any surprise to us. The gospel, when proclaimed faithfully, uh, elicits resistance. And I'm just here to remind you that it has caused the church to thrive in every century since the time of Jesus. So in a way, I want to say, bring it on. But, but I don't want to say that without reminding you there's a reason we have local churches, you see. Um, this is where we get together, hold one another accountable, live out the life of Jesus, suffer the agony of a difficult life together. And in fact, with that, let me ask you to close by turning to Romans 1. And here's, here's where I'm done, I promise. Uh, in your Bible, uh, your pew Bible, it would be page 1126. This is just a word of testimony of what just charges me up these days and and keeps me going. In Romans 1, verse 16, we find a verse that that if you've been around the Bible at all, you've you've heard this verse. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, that was bedrock to his message. It's bedrock to my message. It was demonstrated last night in a way I haven't seen in years. The power of the gospel to save. But here's the, here's the rub. It's only been in recent years that I've come to appreciate the importance of verse 17. And I think this really captures what, what I'm trying to say today. Read on to verse uh, 17. For in it, in other words, in this gospel, this power of God, the righteousness of God is revealed, and look at this phrase, from faith to faith, from faith for faith, from faith by faith. Depending on your translation, it's worded differently, but here's what it's saying. 
The miracle of the gospel is obviously demonstrated when a person is redeemed and transformed. But folks, that's only the beginning of the difficulty. (laughs) That's only the beginning of the need for daily miraculous intervention because I have come to the conclusion that it takes a miracle of God to get us from the point of our salvation to our grave well. Life is hard, folks. Life is rough. If you hadn't figured that out, you, you, you've bumped into this. To me, as a pastor, the, the hardest thing that we now do, the most holy task that we have, is not just getting people into the kingdom of God. It's now getting them through this life in a godly way. But here's what verse 17 tells me. That's the power of the gospel as well. And I just don't think enough people have really taken that seriously. And if I had to say, what's the strategy to make sure that God's people are being most helped to navigate the complexities and the difficulties and the pains and the disappointments and setbacks and agonizing heartbreaks in life? What's the best way to help them get through that faithfully to a place that God could say to them at the end of their life, well done? It's in a local church. See, this is the place that people are going to come alongside you It's where they're going to stand up under your shoulders. It's where you're going to be able to stand up under theirs on their bad days, their bad years. And I've heard stories this morning of of the ways you've already done that. But you do that. You've done that faithfully. And every church, I mean, every community that we know of needs a church like that in it. So you get the idea? I I hope you get my heart. Man, you guys are in the center of of action. Uh, You're in the right place. Keep doing the right thing. Uh, We're going to pray. Um, It's... It's the time the ushers are going to come forward as well. But let me just say, in light of that, I was with your board Wednesday night. Um, You're a partner with us. I was able to just thank them. I think you guys support our ministry at about 10 grand a year. That's where we get collectively the money that lets us invest about 250,000 a year in church planter subsidies, stuff like that that we do. So thank you for partnering with us outside of your walls. Uh, I hope you know that it's making a difference. Would you pray with me as the men come forward? Lord, thanks for for the gospel. Thank you for uh, your presence in this room. And I pray that uh, you'd let every person in this room know, leave the room knowing that their hope index is a digit or two higher uh, because we've been reminded of the miracle under our noses of the church and what you have done through this body of believers. Help us to be available to you for what you want to do through us this week not just in our own lives and families, but throughout this community. We give you the credit for that. In Jesus' name, amen.